Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the greatest novel ever written by a man, uh, and the sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, and the upcoming yet-to-be-revealed third, Banneker Bones and the you'll-know-soon adventure. Um, these are the stories of an 11-year-old biracial boy genius detective and his cousin, uh, as they do amazing, awesome things like hunt down giant robot bees with EMP blast rifles on jetpacks, uh, hunt down alligator people, and hunt down, oh, we'll find out what will that third thing be. Uh, if you're curious to get started, uh, both uh, the Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees and Banneker Bones and the Alligator People are available as paperbacks and ebooks. Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is also available as an audiobook, and the ebook is free to download. Whenever you're listening to this, whenever you're watching this, wherever fine ebooks are sold, uh, you heard that correct. Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is available for free. What are you waiting for? You watch or listen to the show. You like me. You're curious. You want to know if I can write. This is your opportunity. Go check that one out. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, such as the young adult novel, All Together Now, a zombie story, and I'll write now a short zombie story. If you like your zombies slow and rotting uh, and needlessly violent, which is exactly how I like my zombies, uh, if you're a fan of The Walking Dead, you're going to love All Together Now, a zombie story. Uh, if you say, Rob, I, I'm all for horror, but I'm worried that young adult won't be adult enough for me, I got you, esteemed audience. Wait till you check out The Book of David, also by Robert Kent. That is a five-volume serial horror novel, and it is absolutely crazy. Uh, if you listen to me on the show, I'm a nice, mild-mannered ninja. I'm never profane, always polite. Get that out of your head. The Book of David is written by a madman. I don't know, it's countdown till I uh, run for political office and switch that to a pen name. Uh, but until then, you can get The uh, Book of David by Robert Kent. Uh, all five volumes are available uh, both as uh, individual serial novels as well as a compilation. The first book, The Book of David, Chapter 1, is available to download as an ebook for free uh, whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So check that out. Uh, coming up on the show, stay tuned. We are going to be talking with uh, Sharon M. Draper. Her episode will air on Thursday. Uh, we'll be talking to author Dan Gutman. His episode will be uh, airing on Saturday. Uh, and then we've got many other extraordinary guests lined up. If you want to know who's coming to the show, you can keep tabs with everything we're doing at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, tonight, I couldn't be more exciting. Uh, we are welcoming one of my most favoriteest authors of all time and our, uh, to date, only returning champion, our very first guest, the guest without whom none of this would be possible because all the other authors only ever said, yes, I'll come on your show because Laura Martin came on and did such a great job. Uh, esteemed audience, put your hands together wherever you are. Maybe you're in your car. Maybe you're at the gym. Stop what you're doing. Quick round of applause for author Laura Martin. Laura, how are you this evening? I'm so great. Thank you so much for having me back again. It's an honor. I couldn't be more. You know, I talk to you. Uh, I never get tired of talking to you. Uh, uh, we are uh, friends and critique partners in real life, so I, I never what more than a couple of months goes by without me being able to see you. It's mm -hmm. great. It's funny because when I was dreaming about getting published, I was stalking your blog years and years ago. I had no idea we even lived in the same town. So it's a very small world that now I'm in the same writing group as you. Well, you heard an esteemed audience, follow your dreams. 
read my blog, move to my town, join my writing group. You too can enjoy the, the bliss that is currently being experienced by Laura Martin. Uh, and uh, Laura, remind uh, esteemed audience uh, who, who the heck you are. Were those poor fools that were foolish enough they didn't listen to the first episode? Uh, give them a quick rundown of, of who you are and how great you are. All right. Um, so I am an author, but prior to being an author, I was a seventh grade language arts teacher um, here in Indianapolis for about six years before kind of taking a break to do the stay-at-home mom thing and the author thing. I have three young kiddos. Um, five, three, and one. So life is busy right now, and then I do my author stuff basically when they're sleeping. Um, my first series that ever came out with HarperCollins is called The Edge of Extinction. It's a two-book series, mainly because I wrote one book, and they said it's too long for middle grade, break it into two, which is why the first book has a major cliffhanger ending that even I hate myself for a little bit, um, and then it finishes up with Codename Flood. So those are my first two books that came out, um, and then my... Um, not most recent because Hoax for Hire comes out tomorrow, but Float um, was my next one, which was kind of different from Edge of Extinction. These were kind of stories that I'd heard my whole life my dad tell. He had this kind of wild and crazy childhood, so I handed it off to a kid named Emerson who happens to float. Um, and then my newest book, which is why I get to be back today, is called Hoax for Hire. Um, and it's the first book that you ever helped critique and kind of help on its way to its publishing path. So this one is really exciting. Um, I'm excited for it mainly because I feel like I've waited forever for this book to hit the shelves. The way publishing works, we had this one finished over a year and a half ago, right? Like the last time you saw this was almost two years ago. It just takes that long to kind of get it through the pipeline. Um, but Hoax for Hire is about a family who has made their living pulling off these hoaxes. So my idea actually started when I was at Butler University. I had this idea of like, what if you could contribute every awful thing to one family? And I originally thought I was gonna write this story about these like villains you know, this like society of villains. And then it kind of morphed into, well, what if every kind of weird, unexplainable Bigfoot sighting, Loch Ness Monster sighting, what if there was one family behind the scenes kind of pulling those strings? So it's a story about two boys, um, and they are both um, in the McNeil family, they're brothers. And the older brother, Curtis, is all in on the hoaxing lifestyle. He wants to be exactly what their family legacy has kind of led them to be. But Grayson wants out. He thinks it's weird that they have Bigfoot feet in the basement. He doesn't want to have this life of lies that's not exactly legal. Um, the problem is they get pulled into this huge sea monster hoax that their dad sets up, and then something happens to dad, and they kind of have to swoop in and figure it out. So that's hoax for hire. It's much more similar to um, Edge of Extinction than I would say Float is. Float's kind of my departure book. Um, it's a little different. Um, my Edge of Extinction fans, I think, are really going to like hoax for hire. Should we say that float is uh, up there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would call it my funny book. Like I, if you're going to pick a book because it's funny, that's the book that you pick. My other ones have some humor in it too, but they're much more action-adventure driven, where a float is much more character development, humor driven, I would say, which is different for me because I would not consider myself a funny person. Um, my husband always tells me you're a lot funnier when you write than in like real life, which I don't think is a compliment, but it's also true. <laughs> I'm funny when I can think about it for a really long time. I disagree. You make me laugh on a regular basis. <laughs> so, um, although I've got to say that uh, hoax for hire is is I've definitely laughed more than once before I was done. 
So there's plenty of humor in this book as well as, as, as well as action and excitement and the opportunity for us to talk about all kinds of weird stuff. Oh, I, I know. Should, uh, it. When I pitched it, I just saw it on your face. I was like, how did I not think of it? Because you're so into all that stuff. I know one of your main questions you ask everybody is, have you ever seen a UFO? Um, so the fact that I did the book about all the weird things, <laughs> it should have been oh, your crush me. I was like, no, uh, I was, it's the book I didn't know I was going to write. And now I'm not going <laughs> to, <laughs> you know, in a way it's good that you and I are critique partners uh, because life's too short to get to all the ideas I want to do. So if you keep doing the books that I really wanted to write, but I just didn't have time to get to, I at least get to help you uh, launch them into the world a little bit and, and, and get it and, if I can't write it directly, at least be adjacently part of it. <laughs> you said the, um, the book Big Magic. Uh-huh. Um, she talks about how ideas, she thinks ideas are transferable. So maybe you transferred that one to me by hanging out in the same writing group. Who knows? Uh, yeah, because there's not anything on Hoax for Hire that I don't talk about in, in our regular basis in real life. People think this is I really am that far out there. Uh, Jack, let's start because we've been friends for a long time and I've never actually asked you directly. Uh, Laura Martin, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? I have not, um, but I wouldn't want to live in a world where there's not the possibility of one, if that makes sense, which is one of the big themes in the book. I love the idea of the mysterious being out there, that we haven't figured everything out, especially in this world where you know you can Google an answer in two seconds. Um, I want there to be mystery in the world. I want there to be monsters and lakes and creatures we haven't discovered yet. And, you know, possibly UFOs out there who are going to pay a visit. Um, yeah, I don't want to live in a world without mystery. So, yes, I believe that there's so many possibilities and so many things we have not figured out yet. Oh, they're out there. And now that you've uh, published this book that does indeed have a flying saucer, I've got the art cover, so you can't see it as well, but it's got the flying saucer yes, uh, hanging up there. Keep the flying saucer on the cover. <laughs> you are now easy pickings, madam. When the aliens are looking around, they're like, all right, who can we abduct that no one's going to believe? You're for sure on the plus column now. So. Um, so people will just say, well, she must be marketing her book. That, that's why she's saying she's been abducted. And you, who could you, who will you be able to tell? <laughs> I talk about how I hope that someday we, you know, get a really good picture of Nessie or we find a Bigfoot. And I said, I'll be right there handing out my bookmarks because girls got to publicize books somehow. So <laughs> I'll be there going, hey, do you want to read more about this? I have a book about that. <laughs> Do you have the most uh, unpredictable book tour coming up that you could possibly get to? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Outstanding, but it'll always be relevant because somebody's always going to be seeing something odd. Mm -hmm. Let's let's uh, let's go down the list a little bit. Okay, so UFOs, you haven't seen one. How about cryptids in general? Have you seen a Bigfoot, a Sasquatch, anything? I have not, but I grew up. Um, my family. My great-grandfather um, built a lake home up in Monticello, Indiana. It's not really a lake. It's a dammed-up river. It's muddy, muddy river. But I, my entire childhood, I grew up with my dad telling me stories about the giant catfish that live in there. And I think it was part legend, part, like, just scare your kid, you know? So I think that's one of the things I was always so, like, I kept pushing him for, like, details. Like, well, how do you know there's these giant catfish? And he had these stories about how, oh, yeah, they pulled out one that was bigger than a man and all these stories about these giant catfish. So... Um, just that like mysterious element, I guess I've always been intrigued by. So I remember the first time I heard about the Loch Ness Monster, I was like, wait, there's, there's like a monster that looks, you know, it's just that 
mysterious. So no, I've never seen a cryptid, unfortunately. Wouldn't that be a great little like headliner in my book? Um, but that's also part of cryptids is so very few people have seen them and the people that we have eyewitness accounts sometimes are believed, which is why the whole waters get really muddy when you get into cryptozoology, which made research really tricky <laughs> when it came to researching. When I did the dinosaur research for Edge of Extinction, it was much more cut and dry with what scientists agreed on um, for certain dinosaurs and what they might look like, sound like, that kind of thing. Whereas you start researching Bigfoot and you have like, you know, a very small percentage of reliable sources out there and a lot of kind of people just guessing and formulating and you it's hard to figure out who's real and who's a hoax which was funny because i'm writing a book about hoaxes so the research was kind of like falling down a rabbit hole a little bit well, it's kind of i mean you win either way right because like if it's a hoax great you need to know more about good hoaxes and if it's not a hoax great you're curious and you're looking for the monster so either way it's one way right great i came across i worked into Folks from our, so many of the cool cryptid stories that I heard, like the U-28 monster, and um, my favorite is the Silver Lake monster that I kind of worked into the book, that it was this real hoax, that this guy um, on Silver Lake, a hotel owner, did this huge hoax of the sea monster to bring tourists to his town, and it worked. I mean, the town went bananas. Um, and then a few years later, his hotel burned down, and they found the remains of this sea monster creation in the attic. Um, burned to smithereens, which is one of the reasons why in Hoax for Hire, they say that they never get rid of their hoaxing stuff. They just store it because they're worried about that happening again. Um, and so they kind of, I weave that into the whole family's history. But this idea that people are just intrigued by the unknown. I mean, if you mentioned the Loch Ness Monster, people go, you know, to Scotland just to visit the lake where there might be a monster. We're just intrigued by that kind of stuff, um, which is really fun. Oh, a documentary. I can't remember the name of it because God, God knows. A doc documentary is, I don't even know if that's the right term. Crazy YouTube video is, is what I watched. Uh, but it was uh, about Bigfoot uh, specifically. And they at one point they interviewed a guy that was not that into it. They like you. They, they mentioned to him, like, hey, we, we see that you're always the last on the herd when we, well, the, the group, uh, that when you go out and you look for, you know, they, they call it squatching, when they go out and you're, you're looking for the Sasquatch. Uh, and he's like, yeah, well, the way I figure it, if we find a Sasquatch, that would really be something. But uh, worst case scenario, I'm out here with my buddies every weekend and we're camping and it's great. Yeah. Like, yes, that is the right attitude, sir. You're having, a, you're having your best life. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what's funny is I wasn't, just like with Edge of Extinction and Dinosaurs, I wasn't super into cryptids prior to writing this book. Um, I kind of came across it by accident when I was teaching um, we had this whole nonfiction curriculum that we were teaching called Plugged Into Nonfiction, where I had a class of 30 kids, and they gave me seven books of each book. And I was supposed to use that to teach my kids how to read nonfiction, and they weren't supposed to read the whole thing, and we were only supposed to spend a little time on it. And I didn't think it was the best idea in the whole world, to say the least, but they didn't ask my opinion. Um, and a lot of the books were kind of iffy that we were given, um, except for this one, which is called Tales of the Cryptids which is my absolute favorite. You can actually still see I've got my classroom sticker on the binder. Um, I hijacked this one from my classroom, and I still have it. But it's the science behind all the mysterious creatures that may or may not exist. And when we cracked this book open and we started talking about the history of Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster sightings, my kids just, like, perked up. Their eyes got wide, and they were hooked. 
So I shut my classroom door and instead of spending like 30 minutes, we spend about three days on this book. Looking up the wacky YouTube clips, we watch things on, you know, Lauren Coleman, who's kind of like the lead expert on cryptozoology. Um, we watched him do interviews about Bigfoot, about Lockheed's Monster, we're doing all these debates. Um, in the middle of teaching this book, I had the idea for Hoax for Hire. Now, I wouldn't write it for like five years later. So I just wrote it in the margin of my teacher planner. I like told my kids to do an activity. I went over my desk and I said, you know, what if one family was responsible for it all? Like, what if one family was behind all of these things? And then that idea kind of sat on the back burner. I wrote Edge of Extinction. I wrote Float. And I was going, okay, what am I going to write next? And then I pulled up my, I have a, like a accordion file of all my random ideas that I just shove in there. Not organized at all. It's a hot mess. And when I need a new idea, I just start pulling out like, Ideas. Sometimes it's notes on my phone. I open that up and I have all my random ideas in there too. And I found that one. I was like, oh yeah, I had that really cool idea about cryptids. Um, and what's funny is I've actually contacted um, Kelly Milner Halls, who wrote the book, and said, hey, um, so you wrote the book that inspired my book. Can I send you a copy? And so we've had this whole email exchange. Um, and she's so excited to get a copy of the book because I mentioned this book in the author's note about where the idea came from. And so she's going to send me her new cryptid book that's coming out. So it's exciting too. So I'm like, maybe someday we can sit on a panel together and talk about weird things. You can come too. You'd fit right I'll, in the panel. <laughs> I'll just be in the crowd cheering. <laughs> that's going to be a heck of a show. What... Um... Well, somebody pointed out to me once that uh, with that, I want to get back to your idea folder. Uh, but first, I want to ask you about this. Um, right. asked me that if, they, if they went out and they caught Bigfoot, um, it would just be like an extra big, you know, monkey or an ape uh, that was, and, you know, they'd find out things about it. They classify it and it would just be something you'd go visit at the zoo. Yeah. Uh, except for the crazier theories where it's like there's a whole secret society of them out there. They have, you know, like Wakanda technology that's more advanced than what we have. I mean, if you really dig down the rabbit hole, that, that stuff gets really nuts. But <laughs> assuming just like, just a, basically what looks like the, is it the Zerpreter film or is that JFK? The, whatever the film is of Bigfoot that, that, that started the whole craze where it's mm -hmm. kind of maybe a guy in a costume, maybe not, but he's walking a little bit funny. Right. Uh, but if they caught that and they put it in the zoo and you you know you took the kids on a field trip and they saw it later in the day, it would probably they'd be almost bored with it or they'd be on their phones kind of half glanced on it. So what is it you think that when it's when it's still unknown, when it's when it's in a book about cryptids that, that so captivates young minds? Um, I I kind of disagree with that. I think if we did catch a Bigfoot, I don't think it would be ho hum. Um, I don't think it'd be kind of Jurassic Parky where you know how they got bored with dinosaurs, like, oh, everyone's seen a dinosaur, it's gotta be bigger and better. Um, at least not initially. I think everyone would be over the moon about finding a Bigfoot. Um, plus it would there would only be one. It'd kind of be like the pandas in Washington, DC. You know, like it's one of those kind of special things. Um, but as long as they're a mystery, for example, in cryptozoology, um, the coelacanth is a crypt, like the cryptid darling. It's a creature that was supposed to have been dead since the age of the dinosaurs until they spotted one on a fishing boat. Um, and so it's kind of held up as this pinnacle, like, look, sometimes we find them a lot. Sometimes we find them and they're still around. Um, so I don't know. I don't think Bigfoot will lose his appeal, especially since I don't think you'd catch enough big feet foot to big feet, big foots. <laughs> to like big feet high. Zoos with them. It's you know, one and only thing. Plus I can't picture him doing well in captivity. Um, but it's like when they, you know, when the Tasmanian devils died out, um, 
I think things can be special in their own right. I don't think it would ever be ho-hum. I don't think, you know, if we caught, you know, Nessie, I don't think I would be like, seen it. You know, I think there's some things that because of the legend surrounding them and because of all these kids who've grown up hearing about Bigfoot, it would be a wow type thing. And I'd be contacting the zoo to see if I could sell hopes for hiring their gift shop. Maybe for the first 10, 20 years, but by the time the next generation's coming up and there's always been a Bigfoot in a cage and they've already watched how many documentaries on uh, National Geographic or wherever else, whatever, whatever app is uh, pumping out the, uh, the uh, documentaries by then. Uh, I don't know. You know what? Write a sequel. <laughs> uh, and and yeah. you, you convinced me. <laughs> yeah. Well, all my books, I always kind of, um, I write standalone books with the exception of the Edge Extinction series. My publisher wants standalone books with a series potential to it. So I write a standalone book that can stand in its own two feet and be its own complete book. But if you'll notice, there's always a few kind of strings that are left untied in my books at the very end. You're kind of like, well, that never really got answered or there, there kind of leads up to, it sets up for, oh, there could totally be a book too. Um, with the hope that if your book goes nuts and goes bananas, um, you can come back and write that book too. But you haven't closed all the doors. Do you ever uh, write part of them or more of it just, just for you, even if the publisher is not interested? Um, I did start another Edge of Extinction book. This was before Edge of Extinction got picked up to be published. I started writing a book, too, just because I wanted to see where it would go. Now, because Edge of Extinction changed so much and became two books, that became like it wouldn't even connect to the book anymore. You know what I mean? Because books change so much. Um, Float is one that I would really love to come back and write a book to. Um, and I'm, I've debated with how many people have contacted me and wanted an Edge of Extinction book three. I'm like, well, if my publisher doesn't want it, maybe I just write it and offer it up to people self-published style. So that might be something down the road eventually because so many kids want a third Edge of Extinction book. And I have it in my head already. Um, I just, I have so much, I have such a limited writing time as it is with three little kids and, um, life being as busy as it is right now that when I do have time to write, I'm usually, you know, writing a book, copy editing a book or working on getting ready to publicize and launch a book. I've always got three balls in the air. So writing something just for kicks, I unfortunately don't have time to do that right now. I look forward to a time in my life when I do, but I think all my kids will have to be in college by that time. <laughs> yeah. Once they're in college, they'll, they'll never come around and bother you or, or need to think again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, far away. <laughs> a lifelong commitment, madam. They're they're always going to be needing you. Uh, and it's it's funny because I was uh, you know rereading this one this week, uh, uh, last week, getting ready for our chat tonight. Uh, and I was like, well, this was this was two Lawrence ago because <laughs> I've read a couple of books since then. I don't yeah. know if we're allowed to talk about them. No, I kind of had to rearrange my brain to gear up for the launch of Hopes for Hire, you know, with this interview, and then I'm doing a big event at the library tomorrow. Uh, because it has been so long. I've written a whole other book and copy edited a whole other book since then. I'm actually working and writing my sixth book right now. So this one's like two steps behind. You kind of have to remind yourself like, okay, you know, what do I need to do to really pump this book up? Is it easier to get excited about it since you, you've had some time away from it and it's like an old friend at this point? Yes and no. I'm always super excited about a book as I'm writing it because it just feels like, oh, this is the really great thing. Like, this is my, you know, my hit. This is my best seller, my whatever. Um, so when I'm writing it, it always feels like 
my favorite thing in the whole world. And now because it's, I've had two more new favorite things in the whole world since then, <laughs> it's hard to kind of get geared up again. Um, but yeah, it's really exciting, especially as you start seeing reviews come in. Um, it's, it's interesting to see what other people think of it because such a slim amount of people have actually read it. Even our writing group has not read it as it is now, with the exception of you. I mean, it changes a lot in the editing process. Um, so once you start hearing what people think about it, it kind of rekindles your excitement in it because you get to hear from your readers, which I think as an author is one of the best parts of what we do. Obviously, this time around, it's going to be only five-star reviews because only only a fool would publish a four-star review. So I'm assuming it's going to be all five-star reviews for Oaks for Hire. But on uh, earlier books, which were also all wonderful, but where there was that one misguided individual, you know, who lived in a new bomber type shack that <laughs> dared to write a uh, slightly negative review, does that period of time take some of the sting out of that a little bit or no? Not really. Um, and Hoax for Hire has got great reviews so far, but I did have one line in a review that like was kind of a knife to my chest because I sometimes I feel like your reviewers have a bone to pick and it's not necessarily with your book. They're just picking it with the world in general and they're using your book as a platform for it. Um, and they're not judging the story, they're judging whatever. Um, no, I, I purposely don't read most of my reviews. Like I don't go on Amazon and like check out all my reviews the good, bad, and the ugly, because it just sends me down a dark path I don't like. Um, either it pumps you up, makes you feel great, or it makes you feel terrible, and you want to, like, convince that person that you're a nice person and they shouldn't be mean like that, you know? So I try really hard not to read reviews, with the exception of, like, the big ones that you get from, you know, all the big reviewer um, places. So other than those, I really try hard not to read reviews, because they do stick with me. I'm a words person. Shocker. <laughs> but words, words have the big impact more so than say you know actions or quality time or things like that I'm a words person so I try to not get it in my head because they just keep going over and over and over again and honestly it's uh, kind of a paradox that it's the, the the positive reviews you go yeah okay fine but those negative reviews kind of stick with you at least they do for me like, <laughs> I could read five positive reviews like well you're delusional I think I was great but that one bad one yeah, even if it's a mostly good review and they just have one line where they didn't like something, I don't know. But also, as a teacher, I learned very early that you can't make everybody happy. Um, I used to teach, you know, six classes, 30 kids to a class, and I would do these surveys that would go home for their parents to kind of give me some feedback on how the reading program was going, and I would get back anywhere from, like, you're making my kid read too much to you're not making my kid read enough. You can't make everybody happy. You just can't. There's no way you're ever going to write a book that every single person in the world is going to say, this is awesome. Even Harry Potter has so many people who have torn it apart for this, that, or the other thing. You just can't write the perfect book, nor do I think you should. Um, you should write, you know, your own truth and where your own beliefs are coming from and let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> See, I thought that, but then I wrote Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans, and everyone in the world loves it. It's crazy. <laughs> I was going to say those uh, positive reviews, uh, not that I I spend much time reading my own reviews, goodness, no. Uh, I've gotten much better about it, but but back uh, when I was a little bit weaker and and, and, and just getting my, uh, my, my, my shell on, 
Um, those positive reviews would do more to mess me up than the negative reviews because, you know, if somebody says how great you are and, oh, this is literature, and then you you got your pages to write for the day, like, Oof, don't forget, you're somebody great. Here comes some literature. When uh, really, <laughs> that's that's not what got that first book to that person that's going to like it. And if you listen to them and try to write the book that you think they want, they're not going to like that second one. So you got to put all that stuff in. Mean, reviews, they're not... They're not for you. They're, they're tremendously helpful. God bless the reader that takes the time to leave a review. Uh, but they're not for us, the author. That's that's the reader's interpretation. That's their experience that they're sharing. And it really doesn't have anything to do with us. Other people's opinions are none of your business. They just aren't. You know, they're none of your business of whether they like you or hate you. You have to keep doing, do the best you can, basically. Leave it all in the court. I was a basketball player in the teenager so you leave it all in the court you leave, you do your best game you can do um and then you just stand back and hope for the best and write the next book right yeah be okay with writing really crummy next draft because you know you can make it better well, that's that's the other funny thing is all of my drafts as you know come out uh, perfect as though dictated from uh, from a divine source it's amazing <laughs> in a critique group you know to say you do <laughs> Yeah, so it's a short critique session. I come in, you say, Rob, perfect again. Oh, well. <laughs> There's a middle grade cohort in our group. Up until recently, you were the only other middle grade person. So it's always fun to have another middle grade person in a critique group who can who knows your market well, like you do. That's true. We're, uh, we're, I think we're uh, overwhelming uh, the group now, aren't we? There's three of us uh, for five, no, six people. So we're 50% of the group. We'll, we're we're going to convert a couple of folks. We'll get everyone. The middle grade cannibals. Just throw everybody up. Throw everybody up in the air. Yeah. No. We should, uh, we should talk a little bit about the cannibals since we keep bringing them up. Uh, I'm going to ask you facetiously, uh, what does a critique group do for you? How does that help improve your writing? Um, I think it's very hard to create in a bubble, um, at least for me. Um, I like to get a sounding board. And what I discovered, the best part of a critique group for me is not necessarily handing them a full manuscript. Um, it's handing the critique group my first chunk, you know, my first 10,000 words or 8,000 words when I'm just starting to kind of flesh out ideas for a new book because it's almost like a mastermind where you get all these brilliant creative people in a room and the ideas just start going like popcorn. And so you start to kind of see where your novel could go, what it's missing, what it needs before you spend all the time slogging through and writing an entire manuscript. So for me, I find the most value there. That's what I did for Hoax for Hire. I actually submitted a chunk of Hoax for Hire and a chunk of another novel, which is written and complete and will probably never be published because it's young adult and I don't write young adult, so I don't know what I was doing there. But um, having the group look at Hoax for Hire at such an early stage really, really helped in writing the complete piece. And I feel like I was able to write it faster and write it better the first time um, than I would have if I had just written it on my own. Because a lot of times your critique group, especially ours, we all come from different backgrounds, um, different, you know, lifestyles, different. And so you come together and you get to see not the whole world's opinions of things, but you get to see someone else's view on things that maybe you didn't see that flaw, or maybe you didn't see where this might be a bad offensive idea, or maybe you didn't understand that this was an insensitive way to approach this topic and your critique group can save you from screwing up basically and kind of be that safety net and that safe sounding board 
to give you the information you need. So I highly, highly recommend a writing group. You guys were my awesome writing group for Hoax for Hire and for Glitch, which is my fifth book, which will come out here next year. Um, for Float and Edge of Extinction, I actually had a completely different writing group that came from a community writing class that I did with one of my old Butler professors. We did this community writing class. I workshopped chunks of Edge of Extinction. And then like six of us kind of spun off and did this own writing group for about two years. I was the only one who ever got published and they all kind of fizzled around me, which is why when I first met a couple of the cannibals at different writer events, my first year of being published, and they were talking about this writing group they were in, I was the person who was like, so you, you have a writing group? And it's like, it's here in Indiana. Uh, do you need anybody to join that? I very much like kind of pushed my way in and said, well, could I come? Um, just because I was desperate for that sounding board. I think it's so important not to, you know, sit in a room by yourself and only bring your own life experiences to things. Um, and your editor can help with that to some degree if you have a professional publishing house. Um, but I think the writing group is just crucial. Do you use uh, beta readers beyond us? Uh, other than my mom, no. <laughs> <laughs> my mom has, bless her heart, has read every single book I've ever written, including many of the ones that will never be published multiple times. She's the person who reads my books first. Um, more so um, originally to kind of check, you know, for dumb typos or things like that before I sent it off to um, an agent when I was trying to land an agent just so I didn't look dumb because I, you know, have a huge typo on page one kind of thing. Because once you've read your own manuscript so many times, you almost become blind to a lot of those things. Um, so she was one of my people who's read it. When I was teaching, I had one of my teacher friends. Um, who's also a language arts teacher, read a chunk of one of mine. Um, she still asked about that book. That's my book that I wrote that I had to write to learn how to write a book and then trashed it. Um, it was a middle grade book that was 200,000 words. It was a disaster. She read the whole thing, bless her heart. I think I gave her like a $50 Starbucks card as a thank you for it. Um, but no, I really don't have any other beta readers. 200,000 words, you can make that into a trilogy. <laughs> ready, uh, Ready to go. And uh, hopefully, I, uh, Jody Reamer, if, if you're watching or listening, and, and, you, and you might be, uh, ask Laura about her young adult novel. It's a great premise. I would love <laughs> to see that young adult novel out and about. I won't say anything more about it uh, until uh, until you're back on the show and we're talking about it uh, being published. The problem with that young adult novel is I can't make it into a middle grade novel with the premise that I have. So right now, it's just going to sit on the shelf while I try to create a brain for myself in the middle grade world, which is so tricky. As you know, middle grade is a very hard market to market to um, because your readers are not the ones who are buying the books. It's their parents who are buying the books. It's mom and dad or their teacher who is kind of bringing that book to them. So it's a very tricky market to kind of put your foot in and make a name for yourself. So slowly but surely. I mean, just keep churning out amazing books that's a that's a difference maker although uh this is a uh, book four uh that you're publishing and of course you're uh, right now writing book six uh which we i assume we can talk about glitch we can't talk about the mysterious book six right because i mean we can't talk about it because it's so mismatched and a mess right now i couldn't even talk i couldn't tell you where that book is going yet i had to put it on hold where i while i copy edited glitch and got ready to promote this guy so um that's my job tomorrow is when i drop my two youngest off at preschool for two hours is to 
attack that one again. But no, we can talk a little bit about Glitch. Glitch right now is set to come out um, in May um, of 2020, which is exciting. Um, especially since Hopes came out kind of at a later publishing date. I like that May publishing date because it hits summer readers so much better than the August one does. Um, but Glitch is my first time traveling book, which I am a huge time traveler fan. I think I mentioned in the last- Do not count Float as a partial time traveling book? Float has some time traveling elements, but it definitely doesn't get into time traveling as much. Of Float In Float, there's all these campers who have these different weird problems they're dealing with. Our main character floats. We've got a kid who's invisible and can't control it. And one of the kid's problems is he time travels and he can't control it. So um, and since he's not the main character, you know, we don't get into the nitty gritty of time travel. And I did that on purpose because time travel, the more you think about it, the more confusing it is. It's just one giant headache. So I, I don't think I will ever write another time traveling book, which was like it <laughs> for me, because I always read that you can't write something smarter than you are. And I feel like Glitch like pushed the limits. Like my editor was asking for all these like clarifications on how the time traveling worked. And I'm like, I don't know. I left that vague for a reason. <laughs> I didn't want to like go into too much detail because I feel like you, the more you explain with time traveling, the more people can come back and say, well, but what about this? Or well, what about this? Um, so the premise of Glitch is it's set in a future um, where we have figured out how to time travel. Not everybody, just a select group of people um, have the ability, they're called glitchers, um, and they figured out very early that having everyone just time travel whenever they want is a disaster. Because if you really want to screw up the future, you mess up the past. So basically this story starts with these two kids um, and they're at an academy, which is hidden and secretive, where they are trained to go into the past, not to change it, but to like catch the criminals who are trying to change huge historical events. Um, and this actually came from one of my things I used to teach in seventh grade. A lot of my ideas come from teaching seventh grade. If I ever run out of ideas, I'm just going to have to go back to teaching seventh grade. Um, but we used to do this um, big research thing where there was this book by um, Life, and it was called 100 Photographs to Change the World. And it was basically 100 photographs of these huge historical events. And my kids would have to pick an event and then argue whether or not it was the most important you know, event that changed the world. And as I'm looking at all these pictures of Martin Luther King and the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire Factory um, and, you know, the Birmingham bomb, all these things, I said, you know, guys, what if Hitler had won? What would the world look like? And it just, like, mind-boggled them. I said, well, what if, what if Abraham Lincoln hadn't been assassinated? How would our history look different if he hadn't been assassinated? So it just started going, well, what would – you know, our history is so touchy. You change one little thing in history and it just sends things off on a different trajectory. So that's kind of where the idea for Glitch came from. Um, so in the story, these kids are training to go back and protect our history, not because it's necessarily perfect. So for example, the opening scene, um, my character is trying to prevent someone from stopping Abraham Lincoln's assassination, which seems so counterintuitive, right? Like it seems like we should save that amazing president um, but if you look at history, you can't really change it without screwing up everything else. Um, and so that's one of the big things in the story. And they find out something that's going to happen, and they have to break every single rule they've ever been taught in order to save everything they care about. So um, it's my first book I've ever written from two different points of view, which was an you know, interesting challenge for me and was really fun. Um, it's from a girl and a boy. 
which was fun as well because I wrote a, so far I've had two books with a girl protagonist, the Edge of Extinction series, and two books with boy protagonists, which were these two. So it was kind of a way to meet in the middle. Um, it was also my first time writing um, as a race that was not my own. Um, I have a white girl protagonist and a black boy protagonist. Um, so that was kind of scary as well, except for the fact that race doesn't really play a part in the story. Um, and I wanted a book where I felt like you didn't need to have a book with a character of a different nationality and just have it be about their nationality. They can just be a cool kid having an awesome adventure in a book, um, which is kind of what Banneker does um, in your books. I mean, it doesn't really focus on who he is as a person. He just, that's who he is and he's awesome. Right. Um, so it was a little scary, but also really exciting to write from those two different points of view and try something new um, with the full awareness that I could send it to my you know, editor and have her say, I hate it. You need to rewrite it from one point of view, which totally could have happened and would have been really, really hard. <laughs> you know, I uh, live in an interracial family and uh, race very, very well it used to never come up. Uh, and then uh, the election in 2016 happened. There you go. There's a time travel scenario for you. Go back and stop Donald Trump from getting the sports almanac. Oh, well, moving on. <laughs> That's a fun Back to the Future reference. Cannot talk time travel enough. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Glitch. Are you, uh, you going to be using sensitivity readers or having you used sensitivity readers to help you write from a perspective of a race that's not your own? Um, to some degree, my editors have helped with that. Um, if they think you need a sensitivity reader, they make sure you get one. Um, but with Glitch, because like I said, it's not like race pays a big part in it at all. It's not a part of the discussion or the theme. Um, the theme is about something completely different. It just happens that that's who they are. And so we didn't really have that. I um, am going to have a friend of mine read it just for my own sake to make sure I didn't screw anything up royally. Um, but because I just approached it as, I mean, I could have had a kid who was blue and it wouldn't have made any difference, you know, um, in the way the story progressed, which there is a kid that's a guy who's blue in this book. So I've done that. Um, but um, I do think I will maybe have a sense of you once I get the, the ARC copies back, the advanced reading copies. Um, I just felt bad sending someone a giant manuscript and be like, hey, could you do me a favor and look through this 300-page Word document? That seemed like a lot. So. I remember when we were uh, doing our critique sessions, uh, and again, this is two books back, um, you had your, usually you're, you're very stoic, and you're like, yes, give it to me, and you take it like a champ, because you're, you're a pro, you know that there's going to be stuff that comes at you, but you had your head down on the desk at one point, because it was just all the time travel, oh my god, trying to get the, the timeline straight, the plots, uh, to all agree with each other, I did not envy you. Um, have you thought about uh, talking animals or sentient animals, some sort of writing from an animal's perspective type of story? Is that in your future? You sound like my mom. Desperate <laughs> <laughs> for, for me to write something from an animal's point of view. I would love to. Um, and actually, if you look at all of like, the stories I wrote as a kid, they're all from like a dog's point of view or a cat's point of view. I was very into that. Someday, I think you'll definitely see something like that for me. Um, but right now, since my middle grade kind of tends towards like the action-adventure slightly older middle grade crowd. Um, not right now. I don't think I'll write anything from now. I never say never. Um, but I mean, cause like the warrior series did that well, right? You can have action adventure and have animals. Um, so maybe we'll see my next one that I'm working on is not from an animal's point of view. So, um, and I have a contract for six books. So I'm working on book six. 
So if HarperCollins says write a couple more books, you might see some animals in there. Tell me what animals you're thinking of uh, before you get there so I can make sure that it doesn't, uh, <laughs> that I get the idea that I want before. Uh, before it comes to fact, I've got an animal book afterward. I'll tell you about it. Like that one's mine, Martin. Back off. <laughs> Let me uh, ask you a little bit about your, your process because here we are, you're, you're working on book six. Um, how has your process changed from book one to now? Have you switched from uh, planner to pantser? Or what what has changed for you? I have a lot less time to screw up now, if that makes sense. Because when I wrote Edge of Extinction, I didn't have any kids. Um, I thought I was busy, but I wasn't busy compared to what I am now. Um, so I had a lot of time to just kind of play with things. And, oh, if that huge chunk doesn't work, I can just delete it and start over again. Where um, if I want a book to come out every year, I'm on kind of a tight timeline. I have a few months to write it, a few months to get it to my critique group, a few months to get it to my editor. You got to turn that puppy around and get it going. Um, so I don't have as much time. So do I sit down and do a huge outline? Absolutely not. I'm definitely still a fly by the seat of your pants kind of writer. Um, I will do what I call like a messy planning page where I just get all my ideas out on paper to kind of figure out what direction I want things to go in um, so that I don't make huge colossal mistakes. Like when I was writing um, the second Edge of Extinction book, I had to cut about 15,000 words. Um, at one point because I realized I was just taking the book in a really boring direction. They were just wandering around underground. Nothing exciting was happening. Um, and I cut 15,000 words and went back to where the story was working and had dinosaurs bust into the underground area, which is why I realized the story was dull as I had taken away the part of the story that was super exciting, which was the dinosaur element. Um, so I try not to make huge mistakes like that anymore. Um, but at the same time, you know, when we had our writing group just take a look at book six for me, like the little chunk that I gave you guys, I had a 12,000 word chunk that I have not opened up since our critique session. I just started a brand new document and started over again. Um, and I'm at about 15,000 words now. Like I'm hoping I can pull some elements from that back in. Um, but that might be another one I have to chalk up to like, well, that was a, that was a false start and that was a mistake. So we'll see. So, I mean, you've got to have some kind of plan, right? I mean, you, you do a messy outline. So do you know your ending usually? No. I, endings are a struggle for me, uh, a real struggle for me to try to figure out how to wrap things up. With the exception of Edge of Extinction, because I had two books to get to that ending, I, that one was easier. Uh, endings are hard. I kind of know what I want my character to figure out or where I want them to be as a person by the end, what they have to figure out about themselves, like with Float. Um, I wanted my main character, uh, Emerson, to figure out um, the importance of kind of living life outside your comfort zone, the importance of friends, um, the importance of um, just kind of living your best life. So I knew I wanted him to get there. I didn't know how I was going to get in there. Um, so with Grayson, I wanted him to see the value of mystery, this lifestyle of hoaxing that he had hated his whole life. I wanted him to see value in it, and I wanted him to see that family loyalty is important, and I wanted to see that keeping some mystery in the world is important. So I wasn't sure how I was going to get in there, but by the end of the book, I did. Um, so it's just figuring out, for me, how to make that resolution kind of tie up in a nice bow at the end, once I have my character developed where I want them to go, which is a big thing about middle grade. Middle grade is very much um, character-driven as far as what your character is figuring out about themselves, and overcoming and triumphing over because middle school is very much about that. These kids are changing who they are. They're changing 
daily, you know, on what they understand about the world. And it's nice for them to kind of go on a journey with somebody else who's maybe figuring those same things out. It's uh, funny because people people don't know this that don't uh, attend regular critique sessions with you, but your mind is like uh, unlike any other author I've ever met. Uh, it is like just a repository of middle grade plots and middle grade plot instincts. Uh, because anytime we get stuck, it's Laura who immediately says, "Do this, this, and this, and the problem is fixed." Uh, I've never I've never presented you with a problem in my manuscript that you couldn't immediately fix. I don't know how well it works on your own manuscripts. That's the thing. You wouldn't believe. I can read somebody else's draft and say, well, here's where you went wrong and here's what you need to fix because I'm overly opinionated. It's kind of a problem. But with my own books, it's like I can't see the, you know, I can't see my way through the weeds sometimes, which is why that critique group is so important because I feel like you, when you write your stuff, it's almost, almost too precious to, you know? you start to get too attached to certain things where your writing group can say, that's junk, that's fine, keep this. Um, so it's nice to have people who can do that for you and you can't do it for yourself. And um, I know you you still write at night, right after all the kids are in bed? All right, at night. Um, actually, I do more of my writing now in the morning. I wake up at 5 a.m. every day, seven days a week. Um, and I would wake up later, but I have a kid that wakes up between 5.45 and 6 o'clock every single day. So I wake up, I have my coffee program go off at 4.45 in the morning, so it's ready when I walk down the stairs. And I literally just like get out of my bed in my pajamas, grab my laptop and a cup of coffee, and I work until that kid comes downstairs. Then I start my day. Um, because he's like, he is a ninja. He will hear you get dressed. He will hear water running, anything. So I just walk directly down the stairs and work. Because at the end of the day, after watching three kids and all the things that life entails with the running around and whatnot, I'm mentally just like drained. I'm done. I can't think intelligent thoughts, I feel like a lot of the time. So I would sit down and write at night and I would just stare at this blank page and I would get very far. Um, and I was almost kind of resentful because I felt like I should get to take a break at the end of the day, you know, after being up since 545 with a kid and um, I have three kids. So it's not like nap time is a thing anymore, which is a bummer. So I try to get that chunk in the morning. If I can get an hour, I'm winning. When my brain is up and awake and alert, and if I wake up really foggy, I'll actually jump in a freezing cold shower because there's a lot of science behind the fact that that wakes you up like nothing else. You'd be amazed. If you jump in a freezing cold shower, you don't need coffee. It's like you got hit by a lightning bolt. Um, so if I can get sitting in there and actually washing your hair, or no. is it just a wake you up and then a real shower later? You can. <laughs> You just jump in that freezing cold shower and you stand in as long as you can, then you jump out and you're wide awake. It's amazing. Um, so if I can get that chunk of productivity done in the morning, I feel so much better about the rest of my day, about doing the mom thing where I can't sit down and work um, if I've got those words in in the morning. So how are you setting your goals these days? Because I know you're a very goal-oriented person. Are you doing word counts? Are you doing sections? How are you making? How are you holding yourself to task and putting out books as regularly as you are? Um, I set goals for myself every week. I kind of sit down and I plan out my week as far as everything from like what my family's going to eat for meals to chores I want to get done. And then I also have a chunk that's book goals for the week. And sometimes to word count, like I'd like to get 5,000 words done on this book that I'm working on. Um, sometimes it's businessy kind of stuff. Like I want to send five emails out to see if I can get author visits to these schools. Um, or I want to write a letter to this podcast and send them a box of books kind of thing, see if I can get on it. 
um, things like that. So I always have a list. Do I get to all of it every week? No. Um, like this past week, I was super excited. So I was like, it's the first full week of preschool. I've got kids, you know, all my kids in school for two days a week for two full hours each day. Like, it's going to be awesome. I'm going to get all this stuff done. And then both boys got fevers for the entire week and didn't sleep all week and the whole week was shot. So you kind of have to adjust your expectations based off your life a little bit. Um, but setting goals is super helpful. That's how I got Edu Extinction written is I said, you know what? I want to have a book published before I'm 30. So then I have to take the steps to do it. Um, same thing with these books. When I have to have it done by November, I need to get my button gear and get it written kind of thing. Makes sense. You, I mean, you, you, you get it done like nobody else I know. Uh, no, I don't know anybody that writes faster than you. Certainly not in our group. I know there's a few other authors out there in the world, but they're not writing as fast and as good. <laughs> there's some of them just writing fast. I think it's survival. If I don't write fast and well the first time through, it's not going to happen because I just have so little time in my life. It's kind of crazy right now. Like I said, I've got a kid who wakes up before 6 a.m. every day. Just not fair. No. The other two sleep 12 hours a night. I don't know how I managed to get this one. Oh, I have uh, had to give up on my early morning sessions uh, just because I, you know, I've been trying them for a while. And every time I get up early, the kid hears me. I have to walk by his room in order to get to uh, the front of the house. He'll smell the coffee, uh, and then it's too late. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just finally said, "All right, well, what's happening is every day I'm getting up two hours earlier than I really need to, and now I'm just two hours tired when I finally have a chance to sit down and write. So now we just get up at the same time, uh, and I found uh, another time to write." Um, Here's a fun question for you. Um, of all the books, because your books are all of them very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, not cinematic, but certainly would lend themselves to being incredible movies. I mean, you deal with big, high-concept ideas that we'd all love to see at the local cinema. So of the books you've written so far, up to and including Glitch, but not the sixth mystery book that only I can know about at this moment, mm -hmm. um, what, uh, which of these books would you most like to see made into a movie thus far? I would love to see the Edge Extinction series made into a movie. Um, even though that's the first the, the first books that I wrote, which I feel like I've gotten better with each book that I've turned out kind of thing, just the visuals of the dinosaurs and the treehouse village and the underwater lab and all the things that are in that book, I would just love to see that. You know, it was it was so cool to see it on a cover, you know, an image from your book. I can't imagine what seeing a full movie would be like. Um, I think the Edgerton would be fabulous as a movie. Hope for Hire would be great as well. Float would be super fun. Um, I can see Float as like a Netflix series for this camp every single year. But fingers are crossed. I mean, that's the dream, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I uh, go back and forth on that because on the one hand, I've already got a perfect movie in my head that goes along with the book I wrote. I've done my version. So unless I'm allowed to come in and direct it and play all the parts, <laughs> uh, and compose the music and, and do every last job. It's not going to be my version. So it would be really swell if it worked out and it was like a, uh, I don't know, I always thought the Harry Potter adaptations were, were pretty dead on for the most part. Um, and if it were that, then great. If it's, on the other hand, if it's The Dark Tower, um, what a terrible movie version of a beloved series of, of books uh, of mine. Uh, and in that case, I would almost rather not have a movie Um I know. When I taught, I always told the kids, like, don't watch the movie because the movie ruins the book. Um, it does. But I mean, you can always hope you get the the unicorn where you get the, the movie that does your book justice. 
but it would be so neat to see Edge of Extinction on the big screen. Oh, I'd be pumped. I'd, I'd be right there in the front row, ready to go. Yeah. Um, it's, it's Jurassic Park for kids who aren't ready for Jurassic Park, right? Who aren't ready for the, the guts and the gore and the violence of that movie. Um, it's just, but still love dinosaurs. It's right there, so. There's still plenty of dinosaur chasing. Uh, who knows for the movie version, maybe maybe a little bit of blood. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Although that'd be another one that would be that would lend itself to a great Netflix series mm-hmm. uh, if they could find uh, if they could find the budget. Yeah, they're doing an animated Jurassic Park Netflix series. I had so many people tell me about it. <laughs> awesome. Not my book, but still cool. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm hoping it's gonna be good. I'm, I don't know. Did you see Crawl yet? Did I see what? Crawl? No. Oh, it's my movie of the year. I've become uh, evangelical about this. Uh, it's it's my favorite movie. It's uh, when you get a chance. It's it's better than I think than any of the Jurassic Park sequels. It's just such a great premise for a story. So it's a hurricane in Florida next to a, a, a fella and his daughter get stuck in their in their basement, the crawl space, uh, during a hurricane, and they've got uh, kind of open uh, brick, so the water's flowing through. And in the meantime, they're living next to an alligator farm. Uh, so all the alligators have overflowed from the farm and are all around and stuck down there in the crawl space with them. Woo! Oh, man. Oh, well, you heard about the alligator that was in Chicago, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I, I'm originally from the Chicago area-ish. So I was like, wait, there's an alligator in Chicago, but we're getting off topic. But Oh, wait, no. It was the crocodile I saw in Ohio. What happened in Chicago? Uh, there was a crocodile that we saw in one of the like little parks. Um, they named him Chance the Snapper. Snapper. <laughs> <laughs> People had T-shirts. It was a whole thing. They caught him. They brought him like an expert. He's like a four foot long, probably somebody's pet that they got, you know, tired of. They just let go in the pond. I'll tell you what, I don't know how one would ever survive a Chicago winter. I don't know how I survived a Chicago winter when I lived there. <laughs> it wouldn't have survived. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you just a little bit more about marketing. I won't, I won't keep you all night because I know you've got a 5 a.m. Uh, wake-up call, uh, and you've got a big day tomorrow uh, with your book launch, although through the magic of time travel. It is tomorrow for uh, esteemed audience. The book is available now. Go get your copy of Hoax for Hire. But let's talk about your your plans for launching. Uh, what are you doing to launch Hoax for Hire other than being on this amazing podcast and letting everybody know it's available? Um, I've done so many different things to launch a book over the last few years. Some have been great and some have been such duds. Um, but I have one of the things, my favorite things that I do is I've connected with my local library, the Zionsville Public Library, and we do a big launch event for each one of my books. Um, where kids can sign up. They provide like a fun themed snack. I do a big book talk involving um, my book. So for example, for this one, I'm talking about the crazy cryptids that went into the book and the research that went into the book. And um, and then we have a local independent bookstore, the four kids bookstore come in and sell books. Um, and it's just a fabulous event. My first Edge of Extinction event was good. Um, the second one was gangbusters because I had done so many author visits in the area that all these kids who had seen me in schools came and it was just I felt like I'd made it right because I had a line in my sign signing table which if you do a signing at a local bookstore you feel like a used car salesman half the time um, so that was really neat so that's my favorite thing that I do does it sell hundreds of books no you know it sells 40 to 50 books um, on launch day 
but I love it because it's, you know, my local community. It's a five-minute drive. I get a chance to talk to all these kids. Um, so I love that. Um, one of the other things that I started doing the last couple of years um, is reaching out to Instagram, like, influencers kind of thing. Um, and not book Instagrammers, which is what I feel like a lot of book people do is they find, like, the book Instagram accounts, and that's who they send their stuff to. Um, and for young adult books, I think that's great. They have a much more a bigger following on social media by their readers. So for what I mean is if a young adult book um, goes up on social media, the chances of their readers seeing it are really high versus if you put your middle grade book up on social media, a lot of the times the people who are buying those middle grade books aren't following those book bloggers. Um, so a lot of the people that I reach out to are like lifestyle mom bloggers who have kids who are in the right age group for my books. Um, and a lot of times there are people that I've followed for years and have had back and forth conversations with. So when I reach out and say, hey, by the way, I'm a middle grade author. Can I send you, um, you know, a, one of my books? And I never ask them to publicize it. I never ask them to post about it. Um, I just send it and sometimes they do. And they'll say, look at this cool book we got. Or look, my kid is really enjoying this book. And if they have 10,000 followers, that's like free advertising, right? And it's a more authentic free advertising to other moms who might be in that same look for a book. I heard somewhere like you have to have your book seen like an obscene amount of times before someone will pull the trigger and buy it. It's like five or six times, which is so daunting because how in the world are you going to get your book in front of people that many times? Um, I heard seven. Yeah, I mean, it's high, right? So how are you supposed to do that? So I've been reaching out to Instagram bloggers. I send them like cool author, you know, you've, you've gotten some of my fun swag stuff before. So for this one, for example, um, I send a little Nessie ladle, you can see here. For those of you who are uh, listening to the podcast instead of watching it, there's literally, it's a ladle for soup, but with with uh, Nessie's head on it and little feet. My son has been walking this around the uh, furniture all afternoon. I've had it uh, up high. Oh, I think you gave this to me a couple of months ago, and I was so excited about it, and I had it up high where he couldn't reach it, and I took it down today to get ready for the show, and of course, he's it's got little teeth marks on it, so a huge hit with five-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great, I mean, Instagram moment, right? You put your sea monster ladle in your soup you're making, and how cute, and actually, I've heard there's a lady who has an Instagram account, and a huge following just with her soup ladle that she takes pictures of of places the soup ladle goes. Um, another thing I sent out, like for this book, I did a little messy bookmark. Um, that goes in the top. That's really cute. Um, I bought a bunch of, which I don't think you got these because I just recently found them. Um, I put like a Yeti or a Bigfoot bumper sticker kind of thing in. Oh, I didn't get one. This interview is over. <laughs> that looks sweet. I have some awesome ones. Um, so I was able to find, you know, a pack of 12 of these on Amazon. So I just tucked one of those in the book. Um, a couple people, I only was able to find two of these last Christmas. I have little Yeti that went out to people, um, but they're cute. <laughs> so reaching out to some influencers has been helpful because people hear about your book. And so they might not buy your book when they hear about it, but next time they're wandering around Barnes and Noble, they may go, oh, I heard about this one, honey. Why don't you check this one out? So your odds are better um, that someone might catch your book on the shelf. Um, I've done- you know, The uh, person you gave the, the swag to, 
every time I'm making soup, I'm gonna look at this and I'm gonna think fond thoughts like, ah, Laura Martin. I haven't talked to. Well, I I won't think that because I will have talked to you for uh, <laughs> recently. Uh, but somebody might think, oh, I wonder if she's written any new books a year or two. Oh, glitch! I haven't read that one. I yeah. remember Laura gave me this great thing. Let me let me check out her new book that that makes you a big hit yeah. with them forever, right? A raving fan. One of my best marketing things I ever did was reach out to the Read Aloud Revival podcast. This is before you had a podcast. Um, but I reached out to her when I just had Edge Extinction out and said, like, hey, I know I'm a nobody, but I'd love to be on your podcast. I used to teach. Here's some of the things I could talk about. And she had me on her podcast. Her podcast has been downloaded, like, over a million times. Not my specific episode, but just in general. So, and it's reaching um, her audience is not necessarily writers. It's moms who are trying to find books for their kids. So a lot of times um, people get very wrapped up in the social media of book Instagram, where at the same time you need to think about who's looking at all those book Instagram. It might be other writers. It might just be a lot of other authors. Um, but you want to look at who's your market. My market is moms. I'm trying to find moms who are looking for books for reluctant readers, which is really my, my pitch, is that my books are really good for the kids who don't like reading, because that was one of my big passions when I wrote them. So... I'm looking to market to moms who have kids who might not be into reading yet. So where do I find those moms at? And actually, one of the most successful things that I do sometimes, which sounds so stupid, it's very small scale. But, you know, if you go to a bookstore, you go to Barnes & Noble and you set up and do a book signing, like I said, you're like a used car salesman. It's very hard to get anyone to make eye contact, let alone approach your table um, to check out your books versus if I just walk into Barnes and Noble and like scout out my books on the shelf and grab them to sign them and bring them up to the front desk, I sell those books by hand every single time. Like they never get put back on the shelf. Someone will hear me talking to, you know, the person behind the counter asking for the author sign and they'll be like, wait, wait, who are you? What are these books? And I'll stand there and pitch these books and literally I will do an Instagram post or you know, on Instagram stories and be like, hey, I'm walking in, you know, Barnes and Noble in Noblesville, and I'm going to sign books, and I'll have to be like, sorry, there's no signed books. They all just sold. So just lurking around bookstores, carrying your books around, sells books every time, whereas if you sit behind a table, all of a sudden you're a salesperson and nobody wants to talk to you, which I think is very weird, <laughs> but it's true. It is. I'm uh, I'm an author. I've been at that table trying to sell books. And if I walk into a Barnes and Noble and I see somebody has a table with a book I'm not interested in, I do the, uh, I can't see you. I'm going to keep walking. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, man. Mm -hmm. uh, I did do a signing once with somebody who's the best hand seller I've, I've ever seen, where she would walk up, she would meet somebody as they were walking wherever they were in the aisle and put her book in their hand as they were talking or as she was introducing herself, she'd say, hi, and they've already got the book in, in their hand, and she'd say, read the first paragraph of this book and tell me it's not a story that grabs you, and who's going to say no? Obviously the author, uh, mm -hmm. but I felt like that was too yeah. great a cost, to, a social cost to pay mm -hmm. for the sale of one book, because yeah, she sold most of the books, she did that, but the, I, I felt dirty watching it. I don't know, maybe maybe she didn't feel bad, but I felt like, it's not okay. Signings at bookstores have been when I have something else to talk about. Um, for example, there was one signing for Edge Extinction where they set me up front, which I prefer than like, don't stick me in the corner where I don't see anybody. Stick me in the front or stick me in the children's section. Um, and they were doing a big summer reading thing that day. So as people came in the door, instead of saying like, hi, here's my book, could you please buy this? I was like, hey, have you heard about our summer reading program? 
and I like brought them in that way. And then I'd say, I'm here, I'm an author, I'm promoting my book today, this is it, blah, blah. So it was a much more natural way to kind of feed into things. So if you can do a book signing where it's tied into something like that and you have a shtick for why you're there and you're not just the person selling books, that's helpful. The other thing is um, try not to be there for hours and hours and hours. I made that mistake one time, a bookstore said, hey, could you come in from, I want to say it was like eight to one. I was there for like five hours um, and I sold all my books, but at the same time, like five hours of time to move 20 books was like, I don't, I, I could have been writing a lot in those five hours, you know, time is really limited. So if you're going to do a book signing, keeping it to one to two hours max, um, plus, like you said, you're, it's draining to do those kind of pitches. Um, on you and you, you start to lose your enthusiasm by the end of hour two and people can tell that so I don't uh, generally speaking I don't even do that as much anymore just because in the anytime I've done it if I sold my whole stack of books great I feel I feel swell but then I'll pull up my uh, online accounts and see how many books I sold passively uh, not doing anything uh, mm -hmm. during that same period of time so oh man I could have been writing I could have been doing a lot of different things with that time uh, in fact, um, I, I forgot to mention this at the start of the show. If you're in Indianapolis, I will be at Comic-Con uh, this coming weekend. What is that? That's the uh, August 30th, August 31st, and September 1st. Come out. Come see me. I'm going to be there. Uh, Ron Perlman's going to be there. Kate Beckinsale. Lots of, lots of famous people. The fella who does the voice of my favorite cowboy, John Marston in Red Dead Redemption, he's going to be there. But the whole reason I brought that up uh, is I can't wait. I'm going to say Mr. Marston. What was it like to be the cowboy that shot everybody? Because I, I really liked being the cowboy. Did you like it too? He's gonna like get away. You're a grown man. But yeah, but the game though was so amazing. Um, but uh, the reason I bring that is I'm not gonna take any books. They offered me like, do you want to sit and and do a signing? I'm like, no. I'm gonna give everybody a card. I'm gonna let everybody know where you can find me. MiddleGradeNinja.com. Check out the podcast. And then I'm gonna go talk to the guy that's doing Red Dead Redemption. I don't want to sit there and sign books. <laughs> Rob Perlman's going to be there. I got to track it down and ask him about Sons of Anarchy. I'm going to be busy. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, what are some uh, marketing pitfalls that you come across? What are some things you've done that you've learned not to do because I just didn't get you that ROI you're looking for? Uh, like I said, the five-hour book signing was a lot and draining, and I walked away not feeling like it was a win. Um, doing author visits for free uh, were one of the things that I've discovered is not necessarily a great use of your time. I did a lot of them for free right when my first book came out, and I don't regret them. Um, some of them were great, and some of them were not so great. I feel like if a school has zero skin in the game, they're a lot less likely to promote you, to do pre-orders, things like that. I walked into classrooms where the kids had zero idea of who I was, what books I'd written, the, the librarian or the teacher had said, oh, I was supposed to do pre-orders, that was me, you know, even though I'd followed up on them five or six times. So I would move zero books, the kids had no idea who I were, was, it's not like the teacher had prepped them or read a chapter or anything like that. Um, so I've discovered, even if the school's only paying for my gas to get there, if they have something invested in it, they're going to put a lot more effort into making it a good visit. Um, so school visits for free would be one of the things that I would say, um, unless it's a really great opportunity and you know they're really going to, you know, pre-order books and really do it well, um, I would maybe avoid them a little bit. Um, other things, I mean, like I said, I send books to influencers. Sometimes I send a great big beautiful box of books of goodies and all the things and they don't mention it. 
And it's just, sorry. And it's, sometimes it's even people who I've reached out to and said like, hey, can I send these to you? Um, and nope, they don't, they don't mention them. I actually saw one book like on a shelf and someone's Instagram book post. I'm like, so they got them. <laughs> they just chose not to, <laughs> which is fine. Um, and you're going to have dead ends like that. Um, you know, I've reached out to a few different, um, like award kind of things and said, Hey, can I send you guys books just to consider? Sure. You send them, you never hear anything back. Um, but that's all part of the course. You know, you might send out 10 things that have nothing happened and one thing that had a great return on your effort. Um, so marketing wise, that's been one of those things. Uh, I'm trying to think what else I've done. I've done a Facebook ad. Um, you know, I paid a videographer to put together kind of like a preview thing for one of my books and did it on Facebook. I don't think I had a great return on that for the money that I put into it. I don't think it was worth it. But again, it was one of those things I wanted to try and see and throw it at the wall and see if it stuck. Um, and I think if you are afraid to fail, you're never going to find something that works. It's kind of like with writing. You have to be okay to have some writing that stinks because you're going to get to something better. So I feel like the longer I've been doing this, the better I've gotten at marketing my books and figuring out what's worth your time and what's the best thing for your buck. Um, but again, I'm probably going to make mistakes along the way in this marketing as well. And just hope that some of them go well and, you know, do your best from there. I would love to to talk to the person whose plan is to go through life and not make mistakes. You let me know how you're going to pull that off. <laughs> and, then, and then teach me. Well, Laura, I've, uh, I've got so many more questions for you, but uh, one, I'm, I uh, know I'm going to see you again probably next summer when we're talking about Glitch. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, two, I know that it's getting late and you're going to be launching a book all day tomorrow. So uh, instead of asking you my usual last question, which is advice you have for writers, because I feel like we, we, we nailed it last uh, our last conversation, go back in the archives, esteemed audience, check out episode one, Author Laura Martin, you get twofold. You get one, the joy of more Laura. Uh, and two, you'll get to hear how hopefully how much I've improved over 35 episodes from that from that shaky first episode, which, which by the way, well, longest transition to a question ever. Um, but I really do have to thank you because I couldn't have been luckier that you were my first guest if I'd done somebody else where the onus was on me to be a better host when I was. I don't know that there would have been a second episode, but because it was you when you came in all poised and professional and ready to go and you had uh, you had good stories and great advice to share, I was standing back half the episode being like, wow, this is a really good episode. I, I must really be on to something here. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for, for being a great guest and, and, and you're welcome back. Every time you have a new book, I expect that you and I are going to get together and chat about it. Uh, for tonight, uh, what is the most recent craft book that you've read? What are some craft books that you'd recommend and resources that you'd recommend for authors that have made a di big difference for you and will make a big difference for them? The one that I most recently finished was Creativity Inc., um, which was by one of the founders of Pixar, which was really interesting. The cover is what got me. The cover has an out, like a silhouette of Buzz Lightyear, like conducting an orchestra, which I think is just a brilliant cover. But he talks a lot about the creativity that went into creating that company and how they fostered creativity within it. Um, and I learned two things from that book. One was, one thing we actually talked about is that you cannot be afraid of failure. That failure is just part of being creative. That it's in the web of it and that if you're not failing, you're not really creating. And that even the best creators have failures and it's fine. Um, you have to kind of allot for that. And the other thing is I really would like to work for Pixar. <laughs> they sound 
fabulous. The way they approach ideas and people and the way that they run their whole company. They had a whole day where literally no one was supposed to do anything but come up with ways to make Pixar better. And they just had a huge brainstorm of every single person there trying to figure out how to make their company better and fix the problems within it, which I think is just brilliant. So many times companies don't do that. They just keep marching forward with the problems that they have. So that one is really great. Um, I love Middle Grade Ninja Blog. I'm not just saying that because it's you. It's one of the things I've been following for years since before I was published. Um, just because it's a wealth of resources, your podcast, I was listening to, um, before we got on here, you have your clips episode, which is like three hours long, which is like committing to an audiobook, but it was worth it. You said oh, three and a half hours, others, which is great. Um, so one of the other blogs that I always recommend when people, and it's so funny, I get emails all the time of people wanting me to help them get published and explain how to get published, which I'm always like, it's. You know, the internet's out there now. Like, there's so many resources that I feel like I didn't even have when I started. Um, but, but Janet Reed is a literary agent, and she has two blogs, which I think are incredibly useful to people who are just trying to get published. One is called Query Shark, where she lets writers submit their query letters, and then she just rips them to shreds and tells them where it didn't work or where it is working and where she would have stopped reading and why this isn't working. And I read the entire backlog of that when I was trying to get published. I mean, I read everything she'd ever written trying to figure out how to write that perfect period letter. Um, and then she has another blog that's just under her own name where writers can submit questions about the publishing world and then she answers, you know, what to do and what not to do. So I feel like a lot of getting published is not making stupid mistakes and knowing what to do and how not to bug somebody and make somebody mad. So that was a huge, and I still read her blog literally every day, even though a lot of it has to do with getting published. She has little nuggets of information that have saved me from sticking my foot in it more times than I can count. So she's one of my favorite resources for people who are trying to get published. Um, and then just reading books in your genre. So I try to read a lot of middle grade and young adult, um, trying to see what other people are doing, and then not trying to jump on the trend of what people are doing right now. And actually, you talked about that one of your podcasts a little bit ago about how, um, you know, when Twilight was out, if you were trying to also write a book about sparkly vampires, you know, your sparkly vampire book was going to come out three years after the trend had ended. So you really can't try to chase trend in publishing because publishing is so slow. By the time your book comes out, the trend is old news and tired and nobody wants to read that kind of stuff anymore. You have to kind of just write the stuff that, that's your heart on fire, that you get excited by, that you find really interesting and hope your reader feels the same. And that you've got to be uh, excited enough about to not only uh, do multiple drafts of, but to still be excited about it, you know, a year, two years later when you're finally on podcast talking about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you're like, okay, what was that book about that I wrote two and a half years ago? Oh, please, let me quickly reread this thing. Ordering your book. I had this in my Amazon cart for two years. And I've always, like, pulled it out. So, you know how your Amazon cart, like, price goes up and up, and you're, like, pulling the things out that you don't really need? I've been pulling this guy out and my little Bigfoot action figure out for two years. And then finally I was like, oh, I have my launch in, like, a week. I finally need them. <laughs> Essential, really. Because I like to use a lot of visuals when I do author visits, especially to schools. Um, I don't ever hand them around to kids because that's a distraction. Someone will get whacked in the head with Bigfoot. But um, I do like to have visuals because especially the younger kids you have, sometimes I'm talking to third graders or second graders, 
they need something, whether it's a PowerPoint behind you or something in your hand that you're using to you know, describe what a dinosaur looks like, they need stuff. Um, so I always like to have dinosaurs for book two of Edge of Extinction. You know, I had this guy, which I'm actually going to be using him again. Um, this one, I've got my Yeti who's going to come around to all my little author events. He'll get to sit on my author table. So um, I like having stuff that I bring. I bring a whole extra bag of stuff when I do an author visit. Um, one of my other things I'm doing for this author visit, coming up here, this guy, which is Monsters in America, and it's a United States map, and it has all the different cryptids in it. Um, just because I think kids don't realize how many cryptids are out there until you start talking about all the places that they are. And especially when you talk about the ones that are in their own state, I think kids get really excited. Well, that reminds me, I looked up uh, my favorite cryptid, because I, I, well, I've never thought about that, because I, I knew I was going to ask you about yours. Uh, and I, I did some hunting around, and it, it never occurred to me, one, the answer is right away, the Mothman uh, is my favorite of the cryptids. Uh, but uh, my other favorite, who I didn't realize was a cryptid, is the devil. But the devil shows up all kinds of places. I mean, how do you not pick the devil? Satan himself, my God. <laughs> That's the cryptid you want. And apparently he's out there walking around. So uh, watch yourself at night, people. Be safe. <laughs> if you're watching while you listen to this podcast, maybe pull out an earbud. Look around. Make sure the devil's not breathing down your neck. Make sure the Mothman's not trying to get your attention. Mm -hmm. This podcast is going to save lives, Laura. <laughs> well, Laura, where uh, where can esteemed audience find you online and stock you and buy all of your books? Um, all the books are on Amazon. They're all on the Barnes & Noble website. Pretty much anywhere books are sold, you're going to find mine, which is great. Um, I have an author website, which is lauramartinbooks.com, which I don't update nearly as often as I should. Like I said, my writing time is limited, so if I'm going to spend a lot of time writing something, it's usually not a blog post. But there are some good ones on there with cover reveals and things like that and behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, I'm on Instagram under the same handle, Laura Martin Books. Um, I'm also on Facebook under that same name. I kind of kept my handle the same across the boards. Um, I stole John Green's idea when I was trying to figure out my author you know, social media presence. He's John Green Books. Um, and so I'm just Laura Martin Books. I just jumped on that train because Laura Martin is a very common name. Um, and in publishing, there's another Laura Martin who does romance. There's another Laura Martin who does something else. And every now and then I get their, get their stuff sent my way. So I wanted to keep it simple. So Laura Martin Books across all platforms. Excellent. And of course, you can always find me at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, if you head there uh, to check out the footnotes for this episode, we're going to have not just a link to Laura's previous episode, episode number one. Uh, we're going to have a link to a guest post that Laura wrote uh, about arranging school visits and tips for that. We're going to have a link to our original seven-question interview. We'll have a link to a crazy survey that all the cannibals did at one point. Uh, just for fun, all kind of plethora of Laura Martin information available for you at thegreatninja.com. Uh, if you're in Indianapolis, make sure you come out to the uh, Indiana Comic Convention this weekend. Uh, again, August uh, 30th, the 31st, and the September 1st. Uh, come out, see me, see the guy that does the voice of uh, John Marsden and Red Dead Redemption. It's going to be an amazing time. Uh, make sure you come back on Thursday for author uh, Sharon M. Draper. Uh, come back on Saturday for Dan Gutman. And keep tabs for all the great episodes that are coming in the future. Laura, something we started doing uh, after uh, episode one. Well, I was just figuring out what the heck this thing even was. At that point, I was still calling it Middle Grade Ninja TV because it never occurred to me that somebody might want to listen to the podcast. <laughs> uh, so lots of changes since then. 
But one thing we've done is we've done a, I added a very professional sounding sign off phrase that totally explains why the show is called Middle Grade Ninja. And that sign off phrase is hi ya and what have you. When you sign us off, hi ya and what have you. <laughs>